We're going to be in the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter number four this morning. And I know many of you are joining with us as guests this morning. We're so glad that you're here. And um, we've been looking at several different uh, passages of scripture dealing with about uh, Christ's birth, about him coming in the flesh and what that means for us. Uh, as people, as human beings, uh, because in reality, um, the birth of Christ is more than just a story. Uh, it's more than just something that we uh, celebrate uh, once a year. It's more than just uh, listening to the reading of uh, Luke uh, chapter number two, um, because the fact that Christ takes on flesh and dwells among his creation is, is, a, is an amazing, outstanding, awesome thing. And uh, as we look in God's word, uh, we're going to see here, uh, especially out of here out of Galatians chapter number four, uh, what that means for us uh, as believers, as, as people. And we've covered a few different passages of scripture here already um, over the past few weeks. Uh, we, we talked about Jesus being the image of the invisible God. We talked about how Jesus Christ humbled himself, that he became a man, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And uh, last week we covered how Jesus was that perfect sacrifice uh, for our sins, a one-time sacrifice that he paid for all the sins, uh, past, present, and future sins of all mankind. And today we're going to examine another portion of scripture here out of Galatians chapter number 4. Uh, telling the story of Jesus being sent by the Father, that God sent his Son. You know, this week around Christmas, um, people around the world uh, celebrate Christmas. And uh, many people not knowing what it's about are, are consumed sometimes with consumerism. They, uh, about this whole thing about giving things and a lot of people going into debt because of stuff like that. Um, there are some people that uh, uh, Jesus only sees, they only see Jesus in the manger and, and it's almost that Jesus is, is in competition with Santa. Uh, still for others, Jesus is important for this time, but we've reduced the, the story, the, uh, the meaning of Christ taking on flesh, uh, the incarnation, we've reduced that uh, to just some little tale that we tell uh, around Christmas time. Uh, the incarnation is more than a story, as we'll see here in uh, Galatians chapter number four, as we're going to get another peek into this mysterious, awesome revelation of Christ. And so let's examine here this scripture here out of Galatians uh, chapter number four. Uh, let's begin here in verse number four. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Why is this more than a story? Because it's about God sending his son in the fullness of time. You see, the birth of Christ is more than just a story because it's about God completing his plan in the fullness of time. God always works on his own calendar and not ours. From the time God declared the coming of Christ, his people were awaiting the coming. They were awaiting the coming Messiah. And centuries passed, hundreds of years, thousands of years passed before God actually stepped into his creation 
in the fullness of time. When the angels announced the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 2, verse number 14, uh, they had tidings of peace. Uh, God was declaring his promises that were now being fulfilled. Jesus declared at the opening of his public ministry in Mark chapter 1, verse number 15, he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Think of what had to take place in all of God's timing for the coming of Christ to be at the very exact moment that it happened. Uh, there was a great anticipation among the Jews of that time uh, that the Messiah would come. The Roman rule over Israel made the Jews hungry for the coming of the Messiah because they were under, they were under Roman rule. We find that God had prepared the known world militarily through the Romans by unifying the world through the Roman Empire. And with the culture of the Greeks, the, the known language during that time was Greek. It was a highly developed, uh, uh, awesome language that was being used at that time. Everyone spoke Greek, and this paved the way for the gospel to be spread so quickly around the known world. We find that the method of capital punishment at that time was crucifixion, where the victim would be uh, lifted up and suspended between heaven and earth. And Jesus said that he would be lifted up and that he would draw all men unto himself. But see, these reasons are not the main reason of what it means that God sent his son in the fullness of time. There's two phrases that we find here out of Galatians chapter 4. four. Notice the phrase here. God sent forth his son born of woman. What does that mean? God sent forth his son, born of woman. You see, this is the very essence of the gospel. Again, we see Christ as God's son. And as we already looked at uh, the past few weeks about Jesus being fully God. And now he takes on flesh. He is born of a woman. He takes on flesh and he is 100% man. He is the God-man, not 50-50. He's 100% God, and he's 100% man. Christ is born of woman. You see, in this passage, the father sends his son. But notice, this born of woman. Why did God need to be born of a woman? Because this goes all the way back to the book of Genesis 3.15. After Adam and Eve sinned, God made a promise. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That was a prophecy concerning the coming of Christ, that Christ, who was going to be slain before the foundation of the world, would come into the world and take care of the sin problem. 700 years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah the prophet said this in Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You know, it should be of no surprise that in exactly God's fulfillment of time, a virgin named Mary, who never had any prior sexual relations with a man, did conceive and gave birth to a son and was told by an angel to call his name Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. 
But there's a second phrase we see in all of this. Look what it says. God sent forth his son born under the law. This phrase is very important because if God did not have a law, then there would be no reason for Christ's birth. But notice what it says, born under the law. Christ was born under the law for those who were under the law, you and me. What law? The law of sin and death. Because of our sin, we are under the curse of the law. What is this curse? Listen to what Romans 6.23 says. For the payment or the wages of sin is death. Romans 8.3 says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh. Romans 5.19 says, For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Why are you a sinner? Why am I a sinner? Well, because our parents are sinners. Why are they sinners? Because their parents are sinners. Why are their parents sinners? And it goes all the way back to Adam. So by this one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, Christ's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So God sent his son in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law. But that leads us to our second point. Look what it says here in verse number five. God sent his son to redeem those under the law. He was sent to redeem those under the law. You see, we can, see, we can definitely see God's plan in all of this. It was not just to send his son for the purpose of a gimmick or a way to make a few bucks for vendors every December 25th, but it was the purpose to redeem, to buy back those that are under the law of sin and death. The reason why Jesus' birth is more than a story is because this reveals to us God's determination to save mankind from their sins. Why do we need redemption? How good are you? In an article by Christianity Today, a survey was given a few years ago on how many people really think of themselves as sinners. Here are the findings from those that are living in America. One in 10 Americans say that sin doesn't exist or that they are not sinners. 15% say, prefer to, to not say if they are sinners at all. Only one in 20 is fine with being sinners. Americans ages 18 to 44 are twice as likely as to those 45 and older to say that sin doesn't exist. You want to know how we can know if sin exists? Steal somebody's wallet. You'll definitely know that sin exists. Two-thirds, 65% agreed that everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. More than half, 57% said it would be fair for God to show his wrath against sin. However, few Americans seem to think most sins put them in spiritual danger. 
74% of Americans disagreed, disagreed with the idea that even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. When I read God's word out of the book of Revelation, it tells us that even all liars will have their part in the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone. There is no sin, great or small, that can escape the judgment of God. The issue is not how good are you, but how holy God is. You see, we cannot compare ourselves to others by how good we are, because when we do that, we will always think that we are better than the other person. God doesn't work that way. When we are exposed by the righteousness and the holiness of God, we come under his penetrating gaze because he is so holy and he is so righteous that all of our sin is vile, disgusting, and ugly before God. In Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We fall way short of God's standard, and his standard is righteousness, and we have none. We are bankrupt in righteousness. You see, it doesn't matter what you do because you still fall short of God's glory. You still fall short of his perfect standard. People have this idea thinking that God's going to take all the good and all the bad, and he's going to weigh it out. That's not the standard. God's standard is righteousness. Some people think, well, I go to church, so I'm a pretty good guy. God's standard is not church attendance. His standard is righteousness. Some people think, well, I give money to the poor. That is not God's standard. His standard is righteousness. Some people think I'm a good person. I do good works. I love my wife. I love my kids. That is not God's standard. God's standard is righteousness. It's his holiness, and we have none. We are under the law. We are under a curse. We are condemned to eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. The wrath of God abides on those who do not know Christ. We are slaves to sin. And this is what makes the gospel so amazing. This is what makes the story of Christ's birth so amazing. Because Christ was born of a woman, born under the law to redeem us, to buy us back under the law. Christ took on humanity, took on flesh. He lived a perfect life without sin. He was sinless. He was the perfect sacrifice for our sins by dying on a cross and taking our judgment for us. Listen to what Galatians 3.13 has to say. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 1 Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 5, verses 6 through 11 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. 
But God shows his love for us in that while we were good, no. In that while we were righteous, no. In that while we were a sinner, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were sinners, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. You see, if we were just redeemed, that would be something. But God doesn't leave us there. He does something more wonderful than that. He does something more than we could ever imagine. These next few verses here out of Galatians 4 that we're going to look at here are unique. They're awesome. They're mind-blowing of what God does for us. And this is what makes the birth of Christ more than a story. Let's look here thirdly. God sent his son to adopt us. Galatians 4, verse 5 through 7, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You see, it's more than just knowing the facts about Christ's birth about his death, about his resurrection. It's having a heart change. It's being transformed by the truth of the gospel. It's reckoning yourself with God that you are a sinner in your need of Christ and turning to Christ, repenting of your sin and receiving the Lord. And God does something wonderful in all of the midst of this, he adopts us. God adopting humans is the very heart of the gospel. This is what makes the story of Christ being born so fascinating. Why did God choose to use the concept of adoption when he talks about saving us or making us part of his family? In John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, we're told that we are saved, that we are made part of God's family by the new birth. Jesus said, but to all who did receive him, John writes, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So why adoption? Notice what the text says here. What does God call us? Sons. We're no longer slaves. We are now a son, an heir through God. How is this possible? It's possible through adoption. But God cannot overlook our sin. God does not sit there and turn a blind eye to any of one of our sins. His justice, his righteousness, his holiness has to be satisfied. So what does he do? He legally declares us righteous, not on our own merits, but through the merit of Jesus Christ. And when a person repents of their sin and turns to Christ, his righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, is added to your account. 
And so now you can be called a son. You can be called an heir. You are adopted into the family of God. Why adoption? Look at verse number six. It says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There's another passage that goes really parallel with this passage here in Romans 8, verses 15 through 16. Listen to what Paul writes. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. You don't have to go through life hoping, thinking, maybe I am, maybe I'm not a son of God. You can know. When God adopted us, he did not leave us in our estranged state. He adopts us. It'd be kind of like if my wife and I ever decided to adopt a child. We wouldn't adopt that child and then just be like, okay, here's your room. Stay in there. We have our own family time. We do things our own family way. If if you're hungry, uh, you know where the food is. God doesn't leave us that way. He welcomes us into his family. Listen to these endearing words that are used. He says that we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. For those of you that are parents or remember having small children in your home, I don't know what it is, but when my little girl comes up to me and she says, Daddy? I will do anything for you. And God's word tells us because of this adoption, because of what Christ's birth really is about, this adoption that we cry from our hearts, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. He pours his spirit into our hearts to give us the experience of being embraced in the family. In Mark chapter 14, verse 36, Jesus used these very exact words as he was in the garden before he was ready to be taken out, to be crucified at the hands of sinners. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. You see, God gave us the very spirit of his son and grants us to feel the very affections of belonging to the very family of God. Why adoption? Notice in our text again. Look at verse number seven. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We are heirs through God. Romans 8, verses 16 through 17 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see, with Christ, we are heirs of all that God has, namely everything. If you are a son of God, if you are a child of God, then you are an heir with Christ with everything that he owns. 
Listen to what 1 Corinthians 3.21 says. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. Why adoption? Because this revealed God's plan. Listen to what Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 says. It says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Adoption in God's mind was not plan B. It wasn't like, oh no, these sinners, they messed up. What am I going to do? This was always his plan before the foundation of the world that he would adopt us. He knew that many people would sin and need to be redeemed. Plan A was creation, fall, redemption, adoption, so that the full range of God's glory could be revealed. Adoption was not second best. It was planned before the beginning of the world. And when you think about that, when you think about your sin, when I think about my sin, and what adoption really is, God, seeing us in our sin, God knowing how wicked and how evil we really are, and yet choosing us, adopting us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 3 says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. God did not find us cute. He found us ugly and evil and rebellious. We were not attractive. We would not be easy children to deal with. And what's worse, God himself was angry with us. He hates sin and rebellion, and we were the children of wrath. And God, knowing the very worst about you, he pursued you and adopted you, not for your glory, but for his You see, this is why the birth of Christ is more than a story. It reveals the very heart of the gospel to lost and sinful mankind. And so we need Christ. That babe that was born in a manger is important because it revealed the very heart of God. It revealed the fullness of time. It revealed God's whole plan that he purposed before the foundation of the world to adopt you, to redeem you, to have you be part of his family. And this is what God requires. If you're not part of his family, if you're not part of of knowing Christ, if the Father is drawing you If the Spirit of God is drawing you unto himself, 
Do not harden your heart. Repent of your sin and turn to Christ. That's what God requires. And when you do that, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. You're part of his family. You're adopted into his family. And you're heirs with Christ. Your sins are forgiven. And you come to know who God is. Let's pray together.